Tonight's reading is from the New Testament, Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 21. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's um, my joy, personal joy, and privilege to introduce Reverend Tom Gibbs. And um, Tom is our retreat speaker, and our habit and custom is that we ask our speaker to come back and worship with us uh, in our place, in our community, and also those that weren't able to make it to the retreat would have an opportunity as well to uh, hear a bit of what's on their heart. Uh, Tom and I have been friends for 20 years. Uh, we met in seminary together, and after that, Tom went and started um, a campus ministry at Baylor University with this denomination's campus ministry called RUF, and uh, planted that ministry, a ministry that is still thriving today, and then afterward uh, took the, the challenge of moving to San Antonio and planting a church in the center of the city. I had a chance last year to go out and see the work, and I was just uh, bubbly. <laughs> I was so uh, excited to be there to see what God had done through uh, this dear brother's work. Um, and I think it manifested many things to me. Uh, one was there was a lot of connection between our visions and our hopes. Uh, God has opened a way for them to have a building, to own a building right in the middle of it all, of what he's doing in the city. And this is a church that isn't just taking up space. It's not a church that's hoping just to be there to leverage itself, but it's a church that's serving their city, loving their city, advancing the kingdom in a city that is uh, cross-cultural. So uh, as I thought about a retreat speaker for us, um, it wasn't just, I just don't invite my friends to come and speak. Uh, because, you know, that, that isn't what we need to hear, but I invite folks that I feel like really could bring something to us. So, brother, we're so glad you're here, and come on up here. Uh, Tom is married to Tara. They have four kids, and I know he'll be eager to get back to them. We, we work, uh, Meg was chiding me, saying, man, you work your retreat speakers hard. They get no break, but uh, I know you're up to the task. Can I pray for you? Please. Thank you so much, God, for Tom's life, for the way that you came into his life and uh, won him over, conquered his heart, changed his life, and then gave him a desire and gifts to preach the very gospel that he loves. And we pray right now that you would fill him with the joy of his own salvation, and it would overflow into our congregation. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you, Glenn, and thank you, Grace DC. It has been great 
Uh, it's been a true privilege to be with you. And as Glenn said, there is a lot of uh, resonance, we, we might say, between what I think God is calling Grace DC to do and what we're seeking to do in the city of San Antonio. And part of that resonance relates to our commitment to mission, which is what I, I want to speak about this evening. Um, it really falls on the heels of what we've been speaking about um, Saturday and earlier this morning, for those of you who weren't there. But I think even if you weren't, um, uh, I think you'll be able to, to catch up to where we are in God's Word. And so, again, we're looking in um, Romans chapter 12, right, verses 14 through 21, and, and just stepping back from the broader theological narrative, right, as Christians, um, we're to understand that we live between two significant events. We, we live between the original glory that humanity enjoyed in Eden, that the glorious uh, privilege of Adam and Eve, unstained by sin in the world, and we live um, with the future glory yet to come, the holy city that God is preparing before us, the new heavens and the new earth are yet to arrive, and so we live in between these worlds. And so the New Testament gives Christians in this world a kind of dual citizenship. We're citizens of the heavenly city that is yet to come, and yet, because we're dwellers here in this time and in this place, we're citizens here. Paul the Apostle in Philippians calls us strangers and exiles in the world. And so that dual citizenship creates really two things that I want to explore uh, this evening. First, it creates some uncomfortable tensions, right, of how do we live in the world that is also often hostile to the convictions and values and traditions that, that we cherish on account of our faith and trust in Christ, but also creates amazing opportunities. We have this amazing opportunity for us to serve as light bearers, as those who bear witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we think about that mission in the world, one of the biggest mistakes, one of the greatest mistakes we can make when thinking about engaging our world is thinking that this is either simple or straightforward. So often we think that when we engage the world, we're simply well, engaging in ways that are already familiar to us. And yet, if we were to think that following Christ in mission in the world is simple, then chances are we haven't either read our Bibles or we've confused what Christ has called us to do. Remember what Christ called us. He said to, well, take up our crosses and follow Him. He says we can't follow Him and be His disciples unless we forsake all and follow Him. That The call of discipleship into this world is anything but easy, anything but straightforward, anything but simple. One New Testament scholar puts it, well, it will simplify the discussion if we admit the truth at the outset that the teaching of Jesus is difficult, that it runs counter to those elements in human nature such as, and we know them, laziness, greed, ambition, pleasure, and the instinct to hit back. Again, any of us who think that following Jesus into culture is easy, it will, it is, will not reading our Bibles and not truly engaged in the culture. That's, that's what makes Jesus so interesting, isn't it? Culture, people were drawn to him. 
Jesus is unnerving and engaging at turns. We read in one page of Scripture how the crowds were flocking to him. Yesterday, um, we spoke about Jesus feeding the 5,000, and the crowds were just drawn to him. And then, as the crowd pursued him to the next city, Jesus is rebuking them for their pursuit and the superficial motivation for their coming to them, recognizing that they just wanted to use Jesus for their own purposes. Jesus is wonderful and challenging all in the same time. In the same way, Jesus challenges us. How do we bless a world that is hostile to the Christ we follow, that challenges the convictions that we hold, the choices that we make on account of Christ. That's the Apostles Paul's focus in chapter 12. We sometimes think that we're the first ones, at least in America, to wrestle with this problem of how do we live out in a faith when we're not the majority culture? And yet this is the situation of the first century Christians, right? This is the situation of these Christians in Rome. This, in fact, is the situation of most Christians throughout the world, not in the position of power, but in the position of weakness, in the minority, where the consensus of our faith is not shared by most of the population. And the instruction that the Apostle Paul gives us is profound and echoes what Jesus calls us to do in Luke chapter 6, to bless Bless the world. Do not curse the world. In fact, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. As I've thought about these words over the years, and I'm sure that you here at Grace DC have thought about those words it's easy to come up with the ways that we fall short of blessing our world. It's easy to think about those ways that we miss the mark. I just want to reflect on three of them in our time together. First of all, as we politicize those who disagree with us, right? It's easy to craft a narrative for the people who are on the other side of the aisle, regardless of the issue, So we no longer see them as human beings. We no longer see them through the lens of our common humanity, but but they're simply those who bear a position that disagrees with mine. We forget that the factors at work in our world that have deconstructed maybe the power and the, the consensus that we've enjoyed as Christians in the world is not just a function of a carefully guarded political process but in fact is a part of much larger factors that have been at work for generations. James Davidson Hunter in his book, To Change the World, has brought a lot of light to that question. Recognizing that the consensus of faith in the United States that that we've enjoyed as Christians, at least for some, the perception, is more a product of the population, generations that have passed on their faith 
but not of a carefully guarded political process. In fact, in our nation, we would recognize the value of plurality of belief. There's a certain purpose for plurality of belief. There are places in the world where Christians would enjoy that freedom that we enjoy. So often we forget the privileges of our faith, and we politicize those who disagree with us. Jerem Bars rightly says, political activism is a positive step, but this activism sometimes expresses itself in hostile and even abusive language. We ought to take our part in humility and repentance with words of grace seasoned with salt, not with crude jokes, name-calling, demonizing the abuse that we too often use. What happens when those who disagree with us are seen through the lens of a political position or party or special interest group? We forget their humanity and we fail to realize what would it be like for us to enjoy conversation with them at a barbecue, right? Can we envision ourselves enjoying the, the very things that they enjoy in life. When we see things through political lenses, we narrow our humanity and fall short of the blessing that God has for us in this world. The second way that we fall short is by retreating from the world. We experience the world as a hostile place, and so we separate. And of course, Christ has called us to a separateness of our conviction, of our belief, of moral purity. But the kind of separateness that we often um, opt for is simpler, more convenient. We relate to the problems of the world that we perceive as those people, and so we create the us-them dichotomy. Those are the people with the problem, and so I'm going to avoid relationships with them. Consequently, we tend to view sin as out there with those people, and we forget that sin is in here, in each one of us, that we all bear the stain of sin. And so when we retreat from, quote, those people, we're just relocating the problem. The other way that we seek to separate from the world is we relate to the stuff of this world as the problem. We think if we can just get separate from the stuff, then we can be safe. So when I think about stuff, I'm thinking about technology, thinking about media, the arts, music, the body, sex, food, work. And in fact, as believers, we know these things to be good. We know these things to be gracious gifts of God the Father. The problem is not with the stuff of this world, but the way in which we've misused that stuff. And chances are, if we're relating to the world in one of these two ways, either that us-them mentality or thinking that the problem is the stuff of this world, then we already are trying to escape. And when we escape, we're separate, and so we can't fulfill our mission to be the friend of sinners, right? We can't engage and bless if we're separate from the very ones God is calling us to serve. There's a final way that we fall short, and we capitulate. We go along. 
that we go along so that we don't have to get involved and bless. The temptation to go along and capitulate to the culture um, is strong, that there are lots of reasons why we might want to do that. Maybe it's to gain a sort of intellectual credibility. Maybe it's to participate in the insider uh, narrative of culture. And there's lots of problems that are associated with the convictions that we share as Christians that, that, that um, push against us in this way. Ethical stances, theological values, the authoritiness and trustworthiness of the Bible, the uniqueness of Jesus' saving work, the corresponding call to worldwide evangelism. How do we integrate our conviction of faith and the Bible with what science teaches us? And there are the ethical quandaries that press upon us as believers. Not just sexuality in all the ways that it's expressed in our culture, but abortion and euthanasia, issues of justice. You know the lists that I'm speaking about. And in each one, there's this great temptation that we would capitulate or bury our heads in the sand, act as those are other people's problems. Why can't we boil Christian Christianity down to just accepting one another? Why can't we just get along? These are the pressures and temptations that push down upon us. As we think about Paul's command to bless and do not curse... These ways of missing the mark are not just, would I suggest, unbiblical, but they also are falling short of Jesus' call to actually serve and be salt and light and bring the gospel of hope to the world around us. Because think about the selfish motivation rooted in each one to capitulate so that I don't have to be involved, to retreat, so I don't have to be involved. To politicize is to create a power struggle, so that I don't have to engage in a way that involves me in a sacrificial, present, and blessing sort of way. The gospel engages us so that we might engage the world in the very way God has sought us. He's neither disregarded us, He's not engaged us in a power struggle. He's not looked the other way when it concerns our sin. And so how do we do that? How do we bless and not curse the world around us? Well, Paul gives us three ways in the passage, right? The first one is assumed. To bless the culture requires that we're present with the culture. The first blessing that we're to offer the culture is our presence. We're to be with the culture. We're to be where they are. We commonly think about verses 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. I know as I've read that passage over the years, I've thought that, yes, that's what Christians should do with one another, rejoice 
with the joys that we experience as God's people, weep with those who are suffering among God's people. And yet the context suggests that Paul's not speaking about how we're to engage with our fellow believers, but rather how are we to engage with the world around us? What would it look like for us as Christians to rejoice with the broader culture as it rejoices, to weep with the broader culture as it weeps? What would that look like? And again, the harmony that we, we often think about, we tend to relate that within the context of the body of Christ. And while it is difficult to get along with Christians, <laughs> of course, it's even more difficult for us to be at harmony with those in the world. That's the harmony that Paul's aiming at. What does it look like for us to work at being at peace with those who hold very different views from us? Paul recognizes that we're given to pride. Do not be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give no thought of what, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. What does that look like for us? What does that look like for you? As you think about your neighbors who may hold very different views about any number of issues, what does it look like for you to enjoy the same joys in restaurants and recreations with them? It's to remind them that you're like them. What does it mean for us to, well, weep over the very same sorrows that the people around us are weeping over? to enter into those injustices that the people around us are experiencing and feeling, even if we don't fully agree with all of the, the convictions associated with it. What does it mean for us to enter into those moments? It means to model the pattern of our Savior, doesn't it? The ministry of presence is built out of the model of our Savior who became one of us. He became the God-man who didn't think it a strange thing to put upon himself our flesh. He didn't come to politicize a debate. He didn't come to disregard our sin. But he came to be with us. And in being with us, he dignified our lives. That's what the ministry of presence is all about doing. It's about dignifying the life of our neighbor that they're important, they're significant, that they're worth our time. That's one of the things the world around us is wondering about Christians. Do we just see them as holding a position different from mine? How do we dignify the humanity of those who are different from me? Well, we're with them. The ministry of presence, but secondly, the ministry of goodness Verse 21, do not overcome evil by good, by, do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And of course, the first way that we do that is we speak the goodness of the gospel. We spoke earlier this week about speaking the truth. And we, we can't, we, we can't hide the light of the gospel. All of us are called to speak the truth of the gospel, the hope that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do that in informal and formal ways. 
We do that in the front door of our churches like here at Grace DC, but also in all the side doors that you provide in your community groups and a number of various ministries, but also the relationships that you build in the workplace and in your neighborhoods. All of those are opportunities to do good by speaking the truth of the gospel. Paul the Apostle spoken a lot about that earlier in Romans chapter 10. But I think what he's getting at here is not just speaking the truth. He's talking about demonstrating goodness. Demonstrating the good. Again, our calling is not just to defend our position. But to demonstrate why Christianity is beautiful. In San Antonio, that that was a question that we asked at the very beginning of our congregation. What would it look like for us to make the gospel beautiful to our city? And, 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 And a message is often insufficient. Mere words are insufficient to demonstrate that to our uh to, to, to our city. And so we began to think about what are those partnerships that we can form? Where are those places that we can go? What are those things that we can do? And I'm sure that here at Grace DC, y'all are engaged with those kinds of questions that are tangible expressions of what it means to demonstrate goodness. There was a gentleman in our congregation in San Antonio who said, you know, we have this food box program that we would like to initiate in the church. It started in 2003 with 500 boxes. Now we're serving 8,000 boxes that are giving non-perishables to needy families all across our city. I asked him, now how are we going to do that? He said, no, I'll take care of it. I said, where are we going to find the people? He said, that's your job. And so for now, more than 10 years, we've been finding the people to do good to. Now that number, again, is numbered more than 8,000 families across our city. Some of those who've experienced that blessing have now become members of our church. But but again, the, the point is that people don't hear the gospel oftentimes until we have demonstrated the goodness and beauty of it. We're to make the gospel beautiful to the world around us as we show its beauty. Not just decry the immorality of the world. Not just go along so that we don't have to get involved. So the ministry of goodness, the ministry of presence, and finally the ministry of sacrifice. Again, let's look back in verses 19. And 20, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give give him something to drink, for by doing so, you heap burning coals on his head. These are powerful words, because we so often believe in the logic, the power of retribution. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The, the logic of the gospel is different. It subverts that power dynamic and puts in its place the idea of sacrifice. God is calling us 
to follow him in that place of service, that place of sacrifice where we let God be the one who addresses that injustice. And we serve. And we forego our rights. That's how Jesus came to deal with us. He put himself in that place that we deserve to be. And in so doing, he reclaimed us for himself. What God is saying, what Paul is saying here, is I want you to put the cross in your relationships. And I want you to be the ones who bear it. Don't be the one who exacts justice. Be the one who sacrifices and takes that cost of bearing the cross into your relationships. How, how do we do that? What does that look like? That's hard. That's challenging. That puts us in that place where Jesus has called us to take up our cross and follow him into the service of his mission in the city. It reminds us of the prophet Jeremiah's words. I know you've shared these, Glenn, with your congregation. Jeremiah the prophet says when the people of God were in exile, when they were strangers and exiles in Babylon, to seek the welfare of the city, for in seeking its welfare, you will find your own. As we seek to bless our cities, we discover that blessing being enjoyed by all of God's people The path of condemnation is not the path of Christ. The path of service and presence and goodness. Eugene Peterson relates the story, the early life of Chaim Potok, who'd repeatedly exhorted his mother, been exhorted by his mother to become a brain surgeon instead of a writer. He wanted to become a writer. His mother wanted him to become a brain surgeon it said, you'll save lots of lives and you'll make lots of money. This was an ongoing conversation between his mother and himself. It came to sort of an explosive moment at one point. And she said, Kaim, you're wasting your time. Be a brain surgeon. You'll keep lots of people from dying and you'll make lots of money. He said, I don't want to keep people from dying. I want to make people live. That's a wonderful calling for the church. Our calling is not to prevent people from dying. It's to lead them into life. That's the mission of Christ in this world, to lead our culture and our city into life. And that life won't happen unless we are with our culture, unless we're present, unless we're doing good. And we're sacrificing even as Christ has sacrificed for us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your holy word. More importantly, we thank you for your model of service, the incarnation, your life, your death, and your resurrection. And we pray that we, as those who have received your blessing of grace, might model and might follow your pattern, that we might be those present, those who serve, those who do good. I pray for Grace DC. I thank you for this 
amazing marker of the hope of the gospel in Washington, D.C., and pray that you would cause them to flourish in manifold ways, those ways unseen and seen, so that you, Lord Jesus, might be lifted up and the nations might stream unto you. For it is in your name we pray. Amen.